0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Sally Miller and I'm the chief executive of Carers Network. Welcome. Uh, carers Network's a charity that supports unpaid informal carers. We're based in Central London and we support carers in three boroughs: Westminster, Hammersmith and Fulham and Kensington and Chelsea. We've started a series of podcasts on a range of topics and this is the second in our series and today we meet our guest who is Roy Lilly. So welcome, Roy.
1: Sorry, good, good morning, good evening, good weather, good luck, goodbye. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Wherever good to else, have yeah. you,
0: Roy. Yeah. Um, so just to let listeners know a little bit about Roy, so um, Roy started an enterprise over 50 years ago, and he's built it into a multi-million turnover business and sold it off to directors and managers in 1989. He's chaired everything from major boards, hospitals, health authorities, voluntary organisations and charities. He's also been a policy advisor, a visiting fellow at Imperial College in London, and he helped start the Health Services Management School at Nottingham University. He was also a founder of the Federation of NHS Trusts, and that became the confederation. Um, In local government, he's been active for 20 years as a councillor. He's chaired all the major committees and he became the leader of the council and mayor of Surrey Heath Borough Council. He's also the founder of the Academy of Fabulous Stuff, the only free to access repository of best practice in the NHS. Um, And he was a developer of the Fabometer, which is a way of measuring morale in organisations in real time. So he visits about 20 NHS establishments a year, travels around the UK, talks on healthcare management policy. And um, his quote is, healthcare is my interest, my challenge, my passion, and I'm lucky to be involved with the professionals who make our lives healthier, our families safer, and each of us proud of what we do. So as Roy is such a prolific speaker on the NHS. It's a very timely guest to have on our podcast series. And we're going to reflect on the last six months um, since lockdown started in March with Roy. So to start with Roy, just as an overview, what impact do you think the whole pandemic has had on the UK since March this year?
1: Well, so I, I, it's sent shockwaves, hasn't it, through the entire nation? I mean, it started off with Boris Johnson stumbling around the highways and byways of the health service, uh, shaking hands and saying to people, this is all going to be over by uh, by Christmas. And then here we are, seven, eight months later, and we're still now thinking about the next lockdown. I mean, I think, to be honest, I think the nation's in shock It didn't really know what on earth to expect when this started. And the prospect of you actually being told by the government, do not go to work, stay at home, and we will pay you to stay there. I mean, this is a huge, uh, I mean, first of all, it's an imposition on our way of life. Secondly, it it was done for our own best interests. And then we saw the pictures on the television of what was happening in Italy, in uh, Lombardy, where people were racked up on beds in the in the corridors and we thought god you know our NHS is busy enough if that's what's going to happen there I think I think we so first of all there's a shockwave secondly I think people were genuinely frightened and not really knowing what to understand and that now is kind of moving I detect there's a kind of shift in the national mood about this I think a lot of people are saying you know did we go over the top with all that Do we really have to leave a pub at 10 o'clock? What's the difference between leaving at 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock? Can I really only go in and sit down and have a meal? Why can't I stand up in a pub? We're thinking about the kids at school. We're saying, you know, we sent all our youngsters to university. And is it any wonder that 2,000 kids on a university campus, 800 of them have got COVID? I mean, didn't we see that coming? So I think now we've gone from shock to fear to confusion, really, mm. and, I, and I'm not sure any of us understand what's next. And, I, and by, by that, I mean I'm not making a political point here, but I don't think the government really knows what's next. If you look at what's happening in other European countries, uh, you look at what's happening in Spain. I mean, they're they're going walking backwards. If you look at what's happening in France, they're walking backwards. Italy walking back. Cause we're all walking backwards at a time. When we're trying to walk forward, because the government very rightly is saying, listen, if we don't try and get the economy up and running or something happening, we're going to go broke. So, you know, I, I think at the moment, if I was asked to judge the national mood now, I think it's one of confusion.
0: Now, I'm going to take you back to something you said, which um, I want you to think about in relation to carers. It has been a huge imposition on our way of life. One of the things that you you highlighted, um, yes, actions are carried out in our best interests. What kind of imposition do you think this is meant for unpaid carers?
1: Let's start by saying to all the carers that are listening to this, thank you. Uh, it's a it's two little words that we don't use enough. Thank you. You know there are millions of backs that need patting, and we should do it now in this broadcast, and we should give everyone a pat on the back and say thank you. Because in the best of times, our health and care services won't work without unpaid carers. They just won't. And this is not the best of times. This is the worst of times. And how we will get through this without the unpaid carers, I really don't know. I mean, we've certainly not recognised them enough. We've not supported them. If we've got money, frankly, to keep the pubs open, we should have money to support the unpaid carers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, when the history of COVID is finally written, the role of the unpaid carer will come through as a theme that really is under-supported. And on the day that we're recording this uh, this podcast, it's just been announced that uh, Jeremy Hunt is to be leading a, a select committee inquiry into the uh, the response to COVID, and I I'm, I'm, I'm actually interviewing uh, Jeremy in the next couple of weeks, and I'll be saying to him in that interview, "What about unpaid carers? Because as a, a, unpaid carers, they do what they do out of a, a wonderful sense of love, uh, a sense of duty, and uh, the kind of vocation that you can't buy and you can't train. But it's an imposition in people's lives that you know they put their loved ones, before themselves. And, and and that is an imposition. And I don't mean imposition in, in the sort of blunt context of the word, but it does impose someone else's needs in your life before yours. Now, this is imposition in the bluntest form of the words, where it's very, very clear that the government has just said, well, you know, a lot of people will be looked after by their unpaid carers, so that would be all right. But actually, it's not all. And if we looked at I mean, we could talk about care homes perhaps uh, later on, but the role of the unpaid care has just been so completely sideswiped. Side and, you know, when I remember I, I moved from, um, uh, to, in my own uh, COVID experience, I moved from my house in Surrey to, um, I'm very fortunate, I have an apartment in London because I live on my own and I thought I'd be safer in London. And the first um, Thursday I was up here, uh, there was a, a big shimozzle and sh- sh- noise outside uh, the apartment. what the hell was that? So I opened the door and went out to the balcony, and there they were spontaneously, all my neighbours out on the balconies with saucepans and clapping and banging <laughs> for the NHS, mm-hmm. you know. And I just wonder, you know, how many of them realised that the NHS couldn't do its wonderful work without a lot of unpaid carers who are doing it at home behind closed doors. Who knows what goes on behind those closed doors?
0: And you're absolutely right there. And a lot of people are reliant on this group of people that we at Carers Network support. So, you, I mean, you know a bit about Carers Network. You attended our AGM last year. What would you look for from organisations like ours to support carers at the moment that that we haven't done already? I mean, everything's kind of gone Towards people being supported online through Zoom sessions and the like, there's a possibility of Zoom fatigue now. It's been six months. Um, what What do you think charities like ours should be looking to do, especially through the winter months, which is going to be a different way of living again?
1: Yes, yes. And, and you know, it's always the small things that matter, isn't it? When I, you, you, in the good old days, when I used to be able to travel around and talk to organisations like yours at your AGM. I always used to say the little things are the big things. The closer you get to the little thing, the bigger it gets. And so it will be little things. And certainly, yes, I do think, I wouldn't underestimate the importance that technology has contributed to getting people together Mm -hmm. uh, on Zoom and all the other technologies. So the extent to which organisations like yours have been able to contribute to the technology, just helping people to make stuff work and telling them how to connect and and having regular connections and uh, I mean I will run a couple of organisations myself. I have the Academy of Fabulous Stuff and the Institute of Health Managers and we have regular Friday night get-togethers and just for no agenda really. We just have a gossip and and we all you know have a good old moan about everything together and have a drink and you know go stay go home. I was going to say go home happy, but stay home happy. So I wouldn't underestimate. The, the importance of that. I, I think also it's the quiet moment on the phone. Just right. being uh, someone ringing up and saying how you're doing. It's no good having a helpline uh, saying uh, if you need help, ring this number oh eight hundred blah blah blah. It's free. You know, ring us anytime. No, no. Let's ring them. Let's ring them up and say, Harry, how are you doing, mm. John? I was thinking of you, Mary. Are you all right? That is very important. Someone ringing you to see how you are, showing that you're caring about them has a huge, huge impact. The handwritten note. Don't send someone an email. Write them a handwritten note saying, I was in the office this morning. We were talking about blah, blah. You came into my mind. I just thought I'd drop you a note to let you know what we're doing and to see how you are doing." put a stamp on it, put it in the letterbox, let it drop on the mat. A letter, the handwritten note makes such a difference. And I think I'd like to see, it's a small thing. You see, the closer you get to the small things, the bigger it gets. So Mm. it's that kind of thing. You know, are people managing with their bills? I mean, we're now going to have a lockdown. We're going to have a lot of people who are going to be worried about their electricity and gas bills because They're they're going to be there, going to be consuming more. So, how how are they managing with that? Are they on the best tariff? Is there something we could do to get them on a better tariff? Can uh, we as an organization negotiate a better tariff for people who are in our network? Can we go to one of the big energy suppliers and say, if we shifted all our members onto your tariff, would you give us a carers tariff? So there's things like that you can do. It's making sure that people do get a slot in, in uh, Tesco's click and collect and delivery. Mm-hmm. It's not easy for some people to do. It's the small things to make sure. That, have they got masks? I mean, everybody's supposed to be wearing a mask, but they're not easy to buy. You've mm-hmm. got to go to the chemist to buy them. As some of the supermarkets have them dangling at the end of the gondola where, you, you know, where the, the toilet rolls are. But sending people a dozen masks. Well, how much is a mask? Forty-five pence. Send people a dozen masks. Just saying. Listen, uh, we've got these, and uh, we thought you know if they help you or you know, pass them on to someone, you can. So it's that kind of thing. Tell you what, books, mm-hmm. not necessarily written books, you know, paper books. But what about the books that you can that, that are read on um, the the what's it called talking book? Yeah, that kind of thing. And, and it's, there's a, you know, send them a mug, with thinking of you on it. You know, it's the it's little things to let people know they're not forgotten. I mean, we're not going to do the big things. We're not going to be able to improve mm. uh, benefits. You know, we're not going to be able to send them a shed load of money, but we can send them our love and our thoughts and let them know that they're not forgotten
0: and we really care about them. I think you've come up with some very good suggestions. Um, and I think we're thinking along the same lines as well in terms of the personal touch and having a dual approach in terms of it's not just online, it's over the phone. Um, And Keris Network have been doing the welfare calls as well. But the idea of assisting people with pertinent issues such as their tariff, because you're right, gas and electricity bills are going to go up over the next few months because of the usage. So individuals will be spending more money on that. So um, thank you for your suggestions. They've been very useful. I think with the winter months coming um, it may be that more people will be wanting to access their GPs than they are at the moment and just from your work with the NHS how are you observing how GPs are responding to this are you seeing that people are going back into surgeries for their appointments or is it still very much on the phone is it going to be more difficult to get appointments because there's going to be more illness in the winter months
1: well, listen, I mean, it's all of the above, isn't it? I, mean, I have to say that, you know, I, I'm new to the NHS. I've only been involved for 40 years. And I've seen in the last four months, I've seen more progress with technology in GPs than I've seen in 40 years. You know, you, the, the idea of, of ringing up to the GP and saying, listen, can you give me a bit of help on the phone? Was completely anathema, wasn't it? I mean, no yeah. one, no yeah. one did it. You, you used to have to ring up in that golden four minutes between 823 and 8.30, you know, to try and get an appointment in a fortnight's time. Mm-hmm. You know, and every and people used to complain, like how and rightly so about all that. The GPs were, were busy, they were bombed out, they didn't know. Now, of course. You can't get a personal appointment. You have to talk to them on the phone. And, you know, I, for me, I, I, I'm, you know, I don't care what GP I talk to, providing I talk to somebody if I need them, that'll do me, and I'll talk to them on the phone. My mum, God bless her, when she was alive, had a huge attachment to a female GP who looked after her for a while, and, and you know, she would rather die in a ditch than talk to any GP other than the lovely lady who used to look after my mum. So i do understand that people have this personal attachment and an intimacy with the person that they can talk to about their mm-hmm. most private needs and, and worries. So we, we, we do that. But to answer your question, well, certainly GPs now are terrified of people turning up and unwittingly spreading COVID because the problem is we don't know when people are asymptomatic. You know, that means they've got symptoms and they don't know they've got the symptoms and they spread this stuff around. So they, they are trying. To keep, or to prevent people turning up at GP surgery if they can, and of course, a lot of GP surgeries are in areas where people live, and they're in what we would have to describe. By modern standards as inappropriate places. I mean, if you go back to the history of general practice, it never used to be called general practice when I was a lad, it used to be called family practice. And the GP lived in a house like you lived in. Yeah. And his front his front room would be the waiting room, and the middle room would be his surgery. And his wife was probably the person who did the came in and did the bandaging up and did the appointments and so they did the appointments. She's turned up. But, but so a lot of GPs are in, you know, are, are doing a great job, but they're in inappropriate premises. And so trying to keep these places COVID free is an absolute nightmare. And it costs a fortune to do it. So GPs are saying, look, do us a favour. If you can possibly not come, please don't come. That isn't to say that if you want to go, you should be able to go. And of course, you know we're talking about a cohort of people here who probably do have long-term needs, and they do have an attachment with a particular GP. What I'm finding is that the is a bit like I was talking about earlier. Uh, you know, the nation went into shock when all this happened. The GPs went into shock when all this happened. Mm. And they didn't know what hit them. I think they've, they've kind of pick themselves up and give themselves a good talking to them, and they are sort themselves out now and they do realise that they have to change how they work. Part of that will be the recognition that there will be some people who still require the intimacy of a face-to-face consultation and they will have to make that work. But a lot of it, I think it does depend on us. If, if you've not tried uh, an online consultation, then give it a go because you might actually find it's something that does suit you. It's worth having a go. Uh, there's a, I told you, I decamped to London and there's an elderly lady uh, living in the block I and mean, she's in her late 80s now. And uh, she's, she's lovely. We call her the dowager. She's, she's got that kind of air era of era about her. And she said to her, I met her in the garden the other day, and she said, oh, Roy darling, she said, I must tell you about my GP, because, you know, occasionally I'm on the telly and what have you, talking about the NHS and people spot you and they immediately think mm. that it's Roy Lillian, he runs the NHS. Actually, no, I don't. I just talk about it. But she said, Roy darling, she said, I must tell you, she said, you're the NHS, and I have to tell you, she said, I've had this... Experience. She had some outpatient appointment with whatever it is. I mean she's in her late 80s and she's probably got multiple comorbidities, God knows I don't know. But she's had an appointment with a consultant. She said, and darling, she said, he was wonderful. He took his time with me, he read through all my notes, and he talked to me about my medication, and he's changed my prescription and the the pharmacy's delivering that. She said, and I didn't have to go, she said, it was better than going private. And I I did have to laugh. I thought, well, bless you, you know, if only we could kind of bottle that and say to people, if you haven't done a a video or whatever it is, consultation, you know, get someone to help you do it. That's a job for us in our organisation, isn't it, to show people how to do it. Give it a try and Mm. see if it suits you. If it suits you, it'll be a lot better. If it Mm. doesn't, that's fine because the NHS is there, it's open for business, and they keep on saying, if you've got a problem, come and see us. But if you can do it, Give it a go. I think you might be surprised. Yeah. Let's face it. We all talk to our grandchildren on FaceTime, don't we? Yeah. Uh, you you yeah. know, and, and we're all, you know, uh, avoiding our kids who keep ringing up seeing how we are, becoming nuisance, you know, stop pestering me. But, uh, you know, we're we, seriously, I mean, we we're talking to our friends on the phone and we can do FaceTime. A lot of people. I mean, that's the other thing that really annoys me, and that's ageism that's creeping in. You know, nobody over the age of, you know, fifty can is supposed to be able to work FaceTime, are they? It really annoys me. Ageism is my next big crusade. I mean, mm. Go at ageism. Anyway, sorry, I've, well,
0: I've no, no, run off rabbit all. hole. <laughs> not at all. I mean, it was really good good feedback to receive about accessing a GP, and I think you're right. I think all it takes is one appointment and I've also heard feedback about how thorough the appointment has been for people when it has been on the phone and the example you gave about your neighbor with the notes being read through I've heard I've heard similar stories as well so just earlier in the conversation you mentioned about care homes and um from March onwards we did speak to a lot of carers very distressed about not being able to access their their cared for person who is in the care home what do you think is going to happen over the winter months for care homes and, and enabling access of relatives?
1: Hmm. Well, it's not going to get any better, is it? Uh, I mean, that's the blunt answer. Look, can I just wind the clock back a bit to, to, to talk about care homes for a moment? I mean, when the COVID thing was kicked off, the SAGE, the scientific advisory group that advised the Cabinet, told the government to expect 2,000 COVID admissions into hospital a day. Now, the NHS couldn't cope with that. They would just be completely satisfied. Mm-hmm. So they built the Nightingale Hospitals in five days. Uh, I mean, where I am in London, I'm near the Excel, and I, was, uh, I did some stuff with uh, ITN and went and saw how they were building it, and they built these things. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. I mean, you blinked, and there was another bit that had been built. You know, it was fantastic how they did it. But they built all those in the expectation that there would be more use than we thought. Also, at the same time, they cleared out 30,000 people who were occupying the NHS beds and moved them elsewhere. They either sent them home or to care homes. And that's the equivalent of 10 hospitals because they thought they would need the beds. And they didn't want vulnerable people in hospital at risk of catching COVID. Mm. That was why they moved them. And it's true that they were moved without testing. Now, 2.8% of that 30,000, about 9,000 people, were moved into a care home setting. And I, I honestly think that that everyone who moved vulnerable people into a care home just assumed that the care homes could cope. I really do. I don't think it entered their heads that they couldn't do infection control, mm-hmm. that they didn't have PPE, that they wouldn't be able to manage. And, of course, the trouble is, you know, the care homes are often are run by uh, well-intentioned people with, you know, the limit of their resources really on the shoestring because the fees are, you know, often barely adequate. And the others are run by huge companies let's face it, don't have the best reputation uh, because a lot of them are are sending uh, their profits into uh, tax havens. So that aside, I I genuinely thought there was an expectation in government circles that the clue was in the title. It was a care home and they would be able to take care of people. As it happened, it it all fell apart and and we all know what happened. And it it just took ages to get the PPE organised because they didn't have the resources. A very few of these homes had proper resilience planning and they didn't have the skills because a lot of care homes are run by one intention people with very low skills base they, they bring love and care and attention to their work but they they're not nurses you know they don't have the clinical experience to know what to do mm-hmm. and homes are not obliged to have a clinical presence which is a big hole i think in uh, if we've learned anything we, i think we need to, to think that care homes really are not care homes anymore—the the cohort of people they're looking after fundamentally need nursing care of some sort—and we're in the territory of nursing homes. And how care homes are licensed for the future, I think, might change as a result of COVID. But that, having said that, it, it was it was a disaster, and it, not that it makes it any better. But we are not the only country that have had this problem. They had the same difficulties in France and Spain and Italy with care homes. The care homes couldn't cope. And so I guess we've learned some very big lessons from that. But moving forward to to address the question that you asked me, well, how will relatives cope with not being able to contact and be in contact with their relatives? Well, look, I don't think that very much will change in terms of infection control because we know that, you know, when people meet people and they're in contact with people, that's how COVID jumps from one person to the other, and that's how it spreads. Mm-hmm. So I still think we're going to be faced with some pretty difficult communications to sort out. What we did learn, of course, with COVID is that, you know, an iPad is fairly simple to use. FaceTime is free, and it's not. You know, it's not an alternative to give ground a cuddle, but nevertheless it you can still keep in touch. So I think quite a lot of families will be thinking about that. I think a lot of care homes will be thinking about that mm-hmm. and thinking about the strength of the Wi-Fi, because in a lot of the care homes we couldn't get the the FaceTime and what have you working because they didn't have enough Wi-Fi to work properly. So I think we're you know that I think that is being sorted. If it's not, it should be, it should be high on the agenda. So, I, but I think this time, people perhaps will be a bit more prepared. They'll be whereas previously they were taken by surprise by the fact that they couldn't go and visit their husband, their wife, their granny, their auntie uh, in, in care. If they couldn't do it, it comes a huge shock, and they okay. What the hell do we do? People were standing outside waving through the window. I think now this time, well, we know what to expect. I mean, you've got to start thinking about how we work around that. Um, Mm And technology, of course, gives us some of the answers. Sending stuff in the post. I mean, the postman's still delivering a little surprise package once a week for somebody in the care home with, you know, little surprise things and a little handwritten note from the grandchildren and a card. And I mean, there's lots of things now we know we can do. It did take us by surprise in the first, so we're a bit more prepared. Doesn't make it any easier, but I think just doing something makes it that much easier. Mm. So I think I would say my message would be: look, be prepared for the for a lockdown to give us the same problems, mm. but we should be better at giving ourselves different answers.
0: Mm. And it could potentially be a longer period than the initial lockdown in the spring, oh, couldn't it?
1: Don't, I mean, don't even go there. I mean, we've uh, I hope everybody listening has had their flu jab. Uh, I had mine the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, please get a flu jab, because if we get the confusion between flu and COVID, I don't know where we'll be. I mean, we'd be up to our neck in a real mess. So, you know, if you I mean that's something else that we could do as an organisation, remind people to get their flu jab. We maybe could organise flu jabbing or whatever, you know, flu jab parties, I don't know. But I mean we do absolutely have to try and knock flu out of the park whilst we deal with with COVID. I mean the big problem we've got with COVID is there is no vaccination. That's the trouble. Once we get a vaccination, the world changes. Yeah. Because influenza used to kill people. I mean, the Spanish flu, I mean, a lot of people think I'm very old, but I am not quite old enough to remember Spanish flu in 1918. But I have read the history of it, and it was because there was no vaccine. The difficulty with COVID is what it's what's called a novel infection, which means we can't use any of the stuff that we're using now for the flu to sort this lot out. So we're in the hands of very clever scientists who've got to come up with a vaccine. Once we've got a vaccine, we're clean clear the flag
0: down, as they say. At the moment. Yeah, well, fingers crossed for that. Yeah. Roy, thank you so much for talking with us. And, you know, I've noted that you're going to be talking to Jeremy Hunt today um, with their inquiry into the response to COVID. And thank you for mentioning Carers when you speak to him. Um, we really yes, appreciate it. My-
1: yeah, my interview will be online. It's not until uh, a week after next, I think. So uh, keep in touch. And I'll tell you what it is and you'll be able to view it
0: online. Um, so it's been lovely talking with you again. And um, thank you for giving, giving us your thoughts and your ideas. And we'll certainly take some of those on board and talk to them with the team and keep safe. Keep well. And thank you for all your support of Carers Network.
1: It's it, it's my great pleasure to do this. It it, it really is, uh, and congratulations on what you're doing and what you've done and and what you're going to do, and, and and my love and admiration and thanks to Thank everyone you. in your network.
0: Thanks so much, Roy. All right then, take care. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.